Uh, I want to welcome you today to the very last week of our Jesus Dilemma series. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are watching and joining us online. I don't know about you, but that just gets me so excited when I see a video like that. And I think about all of those teachers and all of those students that came back on Monday morning and their school looked entirely different. And all of it was done in the name of Jesus with God's love for our community. So I just want to thank you one more time. We can praise God for what he did. I know we've already celebrated it, but I feel like I just need to recognize it. Now, today we're concluding our Jesus Dilemma series. This has been an awesome series for us as a church because we've really wrestled through so many of the most important questions that we all ask about the life of Jesus. And we've pressed pause really as a church to say this is what we are all about that everything that we do as a church boils down to the fact that we believe a man named Jesus really did exist, that 2,000 years ago he really did walk the planet Earth, he was crucified, he resurrected from the dead, and as a result of his life and his death and resurrection, you and I can have a relationship with God, not based upon religion, not based upon our good deeds, but based upon what Jesus has done for us. And by faith in him, We can walk through the path to relationship with God that literally faith is like the birth canal that by God's grace and faith, relationship with us and God can be born or reborn. And what I want us to really wrestle through today is that the overarching question of all of this, when we look at the life of Jesus, is the question, is Jesus ultimately really the only way to God? Because as we've established with this series, that the only way to relationship with him is by grace through faith, then this question becomes an overarching question and maybe the most important question that we will address all series. And I put that word really there because my son Cayman uses that phrase with us all the time. Really, Dad? Is Jesus the only way to God? Really? That's what we want to talk about today. We, Stacy said uh, earlier that we do a spiritual discovery group on Monday night. We spent four weeks on this question alone. And many people, this is the question that gets them stumped, that causes them to be unable to say yes to following Jesus because of the complexity and even what seems like the exclusivity of the claim that Jesus would be the only way to God. And what I want to ask you to do today, you're going to have to engage your mind a little bit more with me. And uh, God forbid at church that you would actually have to think But I'm really glad that we're in one of the most intellectual and educated places in all of the world. And I'm sure those of you who are watching and joining us online, you're very educated as well, that you can track with me. But I want to ask you to hang with me because this is going to be a little bit more of a philosophical message in nature. But there are two questions that come as a result of this. The first one is this. What about everyone who's never heard of Jesus? What about all the people all over the world, literally the billions and billions of people who have never heard the message of Jesus. What happens to them? And then the second question is, is this really fair? I mean, is this really a fair system that people who have never heard, never had the opportunity to respond, would be judged and sentenced to a place called hell with like not the same or equal opportunity? What we're going to do is we're going to address the first question real quickly, and then we're going to spend the rest of the message addressing the second question. The first question about what about everyone who's never heard of Jesus. Uh, This question literally has been debated about for years. It's a question that theologians disagree on. It's a question that people much smarter than me disagree on, so I feel a little bit safer when I talk about it. But let me just say this. In response, as a church, we believe that the Bible is the authoritative document and truth for us. So every 
belief system that we have literally starts with the Bible and flows out of that. And this question, in my opinion, is inconclusive in the Scripture. The Scripture is very conclusive that religion and good deeds is not the path to God. But there seems to be a category of people, especially in the Old Testament of the Bible, who had never heard the name of Jesus, but they had faith in the one true God in what had been revealed to them. And the Bible says that based on their faith and what had been revealed to them, they could have a relationship with God. The Bible also says in the New Testament that all men are without excuse, that God reveals himself as a creator across the world, and we're accountable for what we do with that. So those two truths almost seem in contradiction to one another. But there's one thing that I do know that the scripture communicates, and it's this, that God is just and God is love. Now, the scripture doesn't say God is justice, but it does communicate that God's character is just in nature. But this phrase, literally, God is love. There is a verse in the Bible that communicates all of what God does and has done for eternity in the past and does now and will do for eternity into the future is motivated by this attribute of his love. So the question about is Jesus the only way to God and what about everyone who has not heard about him flows out of both his justice and his love. And I have confidence that when it is all said and done, that in the end, God's solution to this question will flow out of both his justice and his love. But I also have this motivation that every person would have a clear presentation of the message of Jesus. That's why my wife and I moved across the country to start a church. So it's inconclusive, but my belief is that there is a category of people who've never heard that have faith in what has been revealed to them that God would declare them righteous before him based upon their faith in what had been revealed. We could spend more time on that, but I wanted to briefly address it. And here's what I want to say. Many of us use this question as an excuse to not deal with the reality personally. That we think about all the billions of people and what about the kid in the small town and the village in Africa, and it's an excuse for us to not have to wrestle with the question ourselves personally. But you know what? You've heard, and today maybe you haven't heard, but you will hear by the end of this message about Jesus, and you will be accountable for what you've heard. So we're going to talk about that, but let's go back to this question. Is this really fair? Is it really fair that Jesus would say that he's the only way to God? And then it leads us to this next question, which is this. Did Jesus really say that he's the only way to God? Now, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Because in the Bible, there is a particular passage of Scripture found in the New Testament in the book of John, chapter 14. Now, let me say this. I am thinking, as I give this message today, I am thinking about the person who is a skeptic, who does not believe in Jesus, does not believe in God. And I know that between you and I, you probably don't believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word. But we can all agree on, historians agree, that the most valid source for the teachings of Jesus historically is what we call the Gospels, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the New Testament, that that is the most valid source for what Jesus said about himself. So no matter where you are in the journey, we can at least agree on that this is probably something we should consider in regards to who Jesus is and how he said we can have a relationship with him. And listen to what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now the question is, what's Jesus talking about? Is he talking about this great big construction project outside of Jerusalem that his father is building? No, he's talking about heaven. In particular, in this passage, he says, I eventually will ascend and I will go to this place called heaven. This is the moment right before he's about to be crucified and he's teaching them about heaven and he says, I'm going to make a place for you to come with me. And then he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, I'm not sure if this is a rhetorical statement that Jesus is making or even trying to test them when he says, you know the way, because Thomas, doubting Thomas, that the Bible actually communicates this guy would ask Jesus some difficult questions. I can identify with his struggle that right after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and all the other disciples are like, yeah, he's alive. Thomas is like, Mm-mm. not until I see him will I believe that he's alive. So Jesus comes through the wall and says, look, here's the hole in my hand where I was crucified and the place in my side where I was beaten. Stick your hand and the fin- stick your finger in the hole in my hand and touch my side. And then Thomas believed. But right here, before he's kind of been convinced, he says, hey, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered. This is the most controversial statement that so many people have wrestled through for a very long period of time. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except except through me, right after talking about heaven. So, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, there is no other possible conclusion that Jesus is saying he's the way to relationship with the Father and there's no other way to heaven except through him. But your perception and my perception, the way that we see this verse will radically determine how we receive it. Our perception of it will determine our reception of it. And there are several other statements that we also need to focus on because many times this has been a statement of condemnation that religious people, like the guy that stood outside the Dave Matthews concert with his big megaphone telling everybody, turn or burn, you're going to hell unless you turn to Jesus, that many people have used this religiously as a statement to shove a religious system down people's throats. And Jesus is not saying that. In fact, he says, not only am I the way, but also I'm the truth. Are you in a fog today? Are you uncertain about your future? He's the way out of it. He's the truth. And then he makes a statement, and I am the life. That he came, and the essence of Jesus' life was to bring life to you and I. That when he made this statement, it was like earlier in the book of John when Jesus said to the religious leader Nicodemus, he said to him, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I come and I came into the world ultimately so that the world might be saved through me. And here's what is so important, and this is the overarching theme and really the point I want all of us to hear today. Jesus did not come to make it harder for you to get to God. I think many people, when they hear the exclusive claims of Christianity, think that it is Jesus saying, I'm I'm here to tell you how hard it is for you to get to God. I'm telling you this is the only way, and there are all these other paths, and Uh, you know, this is a new path that you got to figure out and it's a little bit more difficult. Jesus didn't come to make it harder to get to God. Jesus literally came to make it possible when there was no way he made a way for humanity to be 
reconnected back into relationship with God. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few moments. But the question is still there, right? Is this really fair? Is it really fair that he would say he's the only way to God? Well, I think that we can probably just pull the cat out of the bag and address this reality. Christianity is not a fair system. I don't want to try to convince you of the fact that Christianity is a fair system. If by being fair you mean equal opportunity for every person, equal amount of length of time to respond, equal clarity around the presentation of the life in Jesus, equal representation of his love. Because, I mean, we know some of us have had some pretty bad experiences with people who are Christians or followers of Jesus, that their judgment and condemnation and arrogance and pride has been the thing that have pushed many people away. So if by meaning like everybody gets that equal opportunity and chance, Christianity is not a fair system. Now, I'm going to explain to you why I'm really glad it's not a fair system, but let's not like act like we think it's fair. It's not a fair system. But there are also a couple other things that we can agree on. Life is not fair. Some of us have used this phrase with our children, haven't we? Those of you who your kids are kind of at that place where they're starting to reason and they understand like things don't always work out the way that we want them to. This is our blanket statement, isn't it? Johnny, Susie, life is not fair. My boys, listen to this. We had two car seats. One was red, one was blue. They always fought wanting to sit in the red one because that was the newer one. So we needed to get a third car seat for our second car. So we went and we bought, what color? Red, because both the boys wanted to sit in the red car seat. Guess what? Now the boys fight over who gets to sit in the blue car seat. So when we get into the van, in our minivan, there's a red car seat and a blue car seat, and they fight over it, and one has to sit in the blue and one has to sit in the red, and what do we say? Life is not fair. Suck it up and sit in the blue freaking car seat. It's really nice. We paid 50 bucks for it at Toys R Us. It's fine. You'll be okay. Life is not fair. And here's the other thing that is important to establish. Something doesn't have to be fair in order to be true. And I know this because my wife and I adopted a little boy from Ethiopia who's four and a half years old. And this week on Wednesday afternoon, that little boy named Sammy got to go to Subway and eat three chocolate chip cookies alone with his dad, and his dad did not eat any, or at least he's going to say he didn't eat any. And then afterwards, he got to go to a park and sit on a swing and laugh while I pushed him until he could not laugh anymore in a beautiful 80-degree sunny day in one of the most beautiful places in all of the world while children from the village that he was adopted from are starving to death and most of them will die before the age of five. That's not fair. And something doesn't have to be fair in order for it to be true. We know this. Reason, reason with me. You understand life is not fair. All the situations and circumstances are not fair. It's not fair physically. It's not fair athletically. I can attest to that. It's not fair intellectually. I can kind of attest to that one as well. Life is not a fair system. And something doesn't have to be fair in order to be true. And the question that we have to wrestle through is not in regards to the fairness of the issue. The question is in regards to the truth of the issue. 
And the fairness question can cloud our judgment from making a wise decision that I believe determines our eternal destiny. So if you could just with me address and acknowledge the fact it's not fair, life is not fair, and the consequences of unfairness in our society, we can all see it. But the question still looms, where did the fairness or, or the lack of fairness in the system originate? Where is the source of the lack of fairness? And when we look back at the beginning, ultimately what we see is that God created a fair system. He created one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship with one another, exclusively focused on marriage, and he gave them this incredible paradise, equal opportunity to obey and disobey with equal judgment based upon them. And he said, if you choose this one thing, you're choosing death. And if you choose these million other things, you are choosing life. And I'm putting this here in the garden. And if you choose this, you'll get kicked out of the garden. He was so clear And after they would disobey him, just like a just God would do, unlike us as parents in our lack of justice where we tell our kids not to do something and then we're like, don't make me count to three. I meant four. I mean, five. That's what I meant. Now, you're going to get a timeout. No, you're going to go. You're going to now you're going to get a spank. No, next time I promise you, you're going to get a concert. God is just. And the scripture communicates that God created a system that was just. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the scripture communicates that they suffered the consequence. And here's what I want us to see. The unfairness in the system is not a God problem. The unfairness in the system ultimately is a sin problem. The unfairness in the system originated with humanity's disobedience to God, with our rejecting him. And so God created this system that was fair, that was perfect, that if they disobeyed them, they would suffer the consequences, and they did disobey him. And as a result, sin sin entered into the world, and we have seen it over and over and over and over again, the consequences of our choice that creates unfair situations and realities for the people in our lives, and maybe even at times others have done that to us, that we have suffered something that is unfair because of somebody else's wrong or poor choices. And I think that for for many of us, this is difficult to wrestle through. I mean, doesn't it seem sadistic? You know, like, you you know God. I mean, you created us, and you knew we'd disobey you. You knew that Adam and Eve would turn their back on you, and everybody else, whoever walked the planet, would rebel against you. Why did you even create us if you knew this would all happen? Or why didn't you just make us like robots so that you could control every single move that we make? I mean, did you have like some sadistic pleasure that you wanted worship, but then you wanted to show how powerful and mighty you are? Now, again, I'm not trying to talk you out of relationship with God here, okay? I'm just wrestling through the questions that so many people who are skeptics and like, you know, really struggle with these things that are very, very, very real questions. And this is a safe place for you to have your questions wrestled through. Sometimes there aren't always answers, but... But what I want us to see is that this God, who is also just, is a God of love. And the same way that many of you, when you got married and you, like, you tied the knot, and a few years in, your wife came to you and she started saying, it's time. You know, she got that baby fever. You know, my wife had this long before I did. And she kept saying, it's time to have a baby. It's time to have a baby. It's time. I'm like, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. It's time to have a baby. And finally, we had a baby. Because there was this love inside of us that we were content amongst 
one another, but there was this love with a desire for relationship with the fruit of our loins. And when those kids were popped out and they came out, this love-based relationship is not based on control. And if I can control somebody else's responses to me, that's not love. That's not relationship. So God created us with a free will that's not an illusion. There's not some puppeteer up there going like, okay, turn here, turn there, turn there. I mean, he's sovereign, he's in control, but he gives us the ability to choose to love him. He says, choose life or choose death. And we chose over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, we chose death. And this created a great divide. It created a consequence. Separate relationship with God and humanity or relationship that had been separated by our sin. Because out of his justice is his holiness and his purity. So he can't be mutually connected to something that is impure and unholy. So now God has a dilemma. And he's got to, you know, figure out a solution that would merge his justice and his holiness. And if, if you will just entertain me for a moment, uh, not that, the, you know, the Bible says anything like this, but imagine with me, if you will, that there was like this divine boardroom meeting between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we believe God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it, you could talk about that for years. We did a series on it called The Divine Mystery. You can pick it up in our resource center on your way out to that today. But imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, we got to figure out something to do about this. Because we created people to know us and to love us. And the Bible actually says this, this conversation happened before time, which is still kind of confusing for me to figure out. But they're having this conversation. This is, this is what is going to happen. So we've got this place that we call hell. So they're like right you know, on the whiteboard. Option number one, hell. And then, okay, we know that Satan and all of his demons, we put them there because they're evil to separate us from them. We could just send everybody to hell. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because they all sinned, they all made mistakes, they all are disobedient, they're all rebellious. But then God, you know, looks at Father, looks at the Son or Holy Spirit, and one, one's like, you know, that's just not loving. It's, it's just, but it's not loving. So we need to figure out another option. So then God looks at God, and God, you know, throws another, again, not anywhere in the Bible. This is just my imagination. But God throws up another option. He says, okay, heaven. We'll let everybody in. It doesn't matter what the hell they've done. We'll just let them in. Everybody's in. They come on in. And it doesn't matter. Jeffrey Dahmer, how many people you killed, what you've stolen. Everybody's welcome. And then, you know, God looks at God and like, that's not just. So what are we going to do? Now, this brings up another question. All of us want God to be loving, don't we? I mean, we don't want to serve or worship a God, no matter what our religion is, that is a cosmic killjoy waiting to strike us down every opportunity he gets. We all want a God who is full of love, that that just seems so pure and right and true, that if there is a God, that he would be a God of love. But at the same time, we also want God to be a God of justice. And let me explain it like this. How many of you, raise your hands, and online you may, you know, raise your hand, if you're alone, but not in Starbucks. How many of you, raise your hands, have been pulled over by a cop before? Raise them real high. How many of you got a little bit angry at that cop? You can keep them up. Okay, on moment, about half of you struggle with anger like me. Others of you, you cried. But that cop pulled you over and you got angry. Why did you get so angry? Because this time you were only going eight miles an hour over the speed limit. And he pulls you over 
and you look at him and you just want to reach through that window and give him a piece of you know what and tell him this is ridiculous because there are like 30 other times that you've driven past that cop. One time you were going like 10 miles an hour over. One time you were going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. One time you were going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. You were talking on your cell phone. You were texting at the exact same time. You had a cup of coffee. You were doing your makeup and backhanding the kids while you were driving and you didn't get pulled over. And now this one time you're driving going eight miles an hour, 10 and two, your cell phone is in the glove compartment closed and locked away. And this police officer is going to pull you over and give you a ticket. You're like, what are you thinking? See, all of us, something about injustice doesn't make sense. Imagine it like this, those of you who are students. Imagine you study really hard for an exam, and you go in, and your freshman, uh, in your freshman class, the English professor gives you this test. You take the test, and at the end of the test, your professor goes out, smokes three joints, drinks a 12-pack of Bud Light, and then decides he's going to grade your exam. What are you thinking to yourself? Some of you are like, I really hope my professor does that. But those of you who studied, you're like, that doesn't make sense. What if he threw all the papers up and he said, this line, this is A, this line's B, this is C, this is D, E, and F. And based upon where the papers land, that's the grade that you get. See, an unjust system doesn't make sense to us. We want God to be just and we want him to be loving. So the father looks at the son and says, here's the solution. The only way through this is if you go down there. If you go down there. Now, when you go down no sinning, okay? You've been perfect for eternity into the past, but when you've gone down there, like no swirlies with your brother's head in the toilet, like you got to live the perfect sinless life and we're going to send you into the belly of a virgin and watch what happens when she tells everybody like she's pregnant with God's kid and never, you know, been with a man before. You're going down. And at the end of 33 years after you've been there, you're going to be placed on a cross and there's going to be a crown of thorns in your ha head and nails in your hands and feet and you're going to pay the price for the rebellion and the wickedness of all of humanity. Now, Jesus probably said, well, can I skip the diaper phase? God's like, Father's like, nope, no skipping the diaper phase. You got to go pay the price. Be one of them, fully God, fully human, and live the perfect sinless life. And I love this particular verse of Scripture. It says, this is how God showed he loved us or his love among us. You want to know the love of God that flows from his character? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Some of you have only one child or one son. Could you imagine sending that son to die in a prison for somebody else's wickedness? Yet he would choose to send his only son in order that we might live, have life, have joy and peace through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us before we ever knew who he was or had heard of him. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, meaning ultimately that Jesus would live the life that you and I did not live, and he would die the death that you and I should have died because of our sin. He would come and he would live perfectly, and he would be placed in the gap between God and humanity so that we could be restored to relationship with God. And here's the next thing that I want you to see. The cross would then become the ultimate collision of both God's love and justice. A solution 
that I could have never come up with and you could have never come up with if you had all eternity to figure it out. And he said, I'll bridge the gap. I will be loving and just, and I will take their penalty, their sin, on a cross. See, the way that you perceive this truth radically affects the way that you receive it. And I think that there are kind of two different ways to look at this in conclusion. I want you just to hang with me for a minute. I want to share with you a parable that I made up, and it'll give you a little bit of a glimpse into my weird brain. But just imagine with me, okay? Humor me for a second. Imagine that you go out to the Grand Canyon with your family and your friends, and you're having a good time, and you're hiking across the desert. And you're hiking across the desert, and all of a sudden you can kind of see the divide, the canyon. And you get a little bit closer, and you look at that canyon, and you realize it's miles across. There's no way you're jumping. There's no way that you're going to even build a bridge to get across. But then you walk a little bit this way, and you go back this way, and you realize there's a bridge here, and then there's another bridge here, and then there's another bridge over here. And when you get to these bridges, all of a sudden you see people. You're like, he's crossing, she's crossing, he's crossing. And then your family, they start going across. And, but it's foggy. Like you can only see about halfway out across the canyon. And then there's this one guy in front of one of the bridges. And he looks at you and he says, this is the only bridge. This is the only way to get across. You'd probably look at that guy and you'd say, you know, it's kind of weird. Because here are all these sincere people. And I know that nobody who's ever been sincere has ever been wrong before. That's satirical. That's not true. But here are all these sincere people, crowds and mobs of them walking across this bridge. And it's still foggy. And he says, nope, this is it. You'd look at him and you'd say, that's arrogant. That's exclusive. I mean, who do you think you are to say that you are the only bridge? You're the only way that I can get across this great divide. All right, you got that snapshot? Now we're going to go and we're going to look at a different story a story that is reality as it pertains to this issue. Imagine the Grand Canyon hike again, and this time it's a little bit different, okay? On this particular occasion, you're walking up to the Grand Canyon with your friends or your family members, and it's the same type of deal. But you look, when you get to the edge of the canyon, and you look this way, and you look that way, and you start to walk, and you go maybe a mile or two, and you realize there's no bridge. And then you go back this way, and you're like, there's no bridge to get across over here either. And you're like, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden, you see this firestorm closing in on you from behind. And then there are these little chihuahuas running up after you. Like, there are literally hundreds of chihuahuas. But these aren't just normal chihuahuas. These are man-eating chihuahuas. And they're coming up on you, and you see them closing in. And people start to freak out because they're like, we got, we got to get away from these chihuahuas. We get a, got to get away from, like, this storm. So people, like, they pull out trampolines and they're jumping. And we're like, okay, one, two, three, let's jump. Run as fast as we can and jump off that trampoline. And they're, like, getting 100 yards or, you know, 10 yards in, into the canyon. And you're like, bro, that's stupid. You're, like, watching them fall down. And then all of a sudden over here you look and there's some guys and they pull out hammers and nails. And they're, like, trying to build a bridge across. And you're like, there's no way you're going to build a bridge across. And then, this is where the story gets really, really cool. Then in, like, real Star Trek fashion, okay, imagine with me this great spaceship comes down. And it lands right in between the two divides. And the spaceship lands. And then of all, all of a sudden you realize that this is a bridge that you can walk across. And this man steps out of the bridge and he looks at you and he says, Come, you can have life. There's peace and there's hope and there's joy on the other side of the bridge. And all you have to do is walk across it. All you have to do is receive it and step out. And you can be saved. You can avoid these flames behind you and these horrible chihuahuas that are 
yapping at your heels trying to destroy you. See, friends, Jesus did not come to make it harder for you to get to God. He came to make it possible. And every world religion, Christianity included, falls short. It's like me standing on a trampoline, jumping, hoping I can jump across like a five-mile canyon or I can get to the moon. It doesn't matter what my, you know, my leaps are. If I'm LeBron James, it doesn't cover the gap. There had to be somebody other than us, somebody who was perfect, somebody who was righteous, somebody who was holy to live the life I couldn't live and died the death that I should have died so that I can have a relationship with God. And friends, my hope, the thing I've been praying for all week is that you would hear this and you would say, this is great news. This is the best news that you could ever hear. It's not a statement of condemnation. It's a statement of life. It's a statement of invitation where God is saying to you, receive it. I've come so that you can have life. You don't have to be separated from me anymore. You can receive it. And in this moment, by faith in what I've done for you, you can receive salvation. And for all of eternity, you can have relationship with me. This is good news. Jesus didn't come to make it harder for you. He came to make it possible. And if you, by grace, by grace through faith, will receive it, you can have a relationship with God. So will you receive it? And every eye closed and every head bowed. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on our behalf. Best news ever. Celebrate you today. You alone are worthy. All across this room, joining us online, listening via podcasts, there's no decision that you will make that will trump the significance of what you believe about this man, Jesus, and if you'll receive the gift that he wants to offer to you. I pray that you would receive it today by faith. He's knocking on the door of some of your hearts. He's inviting you into relationship. He's telling you it's not about what you've done. It's not about what you can do. I'll never love you anymore or any less than I love you at this moment. And I came to die for you as an atoning sacrifice so you could have life. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. Walk across the bridge by faith and receive salvation. If that's you today, never having placed your faith in Jesus, just tell him today from the bottom of your heart. Just say something that goes like this and it's not a prayer that saves you. It's the condition of your heart. But just say, Jesus, thank you today. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for paying the price so that I can have life. Thank you for dying in my place. I recognize I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my past. I receive salvation and life in you. If you prayed that, will you just raise your hand up high just so I can see all across the room for the first time? If that's your prayer, raise your hands up high. I see you up front here in the middle. I see you in the back on the left. Keep them raised up high. This is you saying today, I surrender my life to God. Back in the left, I see your hands. This is the most important decision that you will ever make. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to write it down on the connection card to seal it, to let us know that you've made this decision. Others of you who are followers of Jesus today, let it just be a moment that you would just say to God again, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way that I could have life so that I don't have to be separated from you. Celebrate you. Jesus, you are worthy today to be praised. pray all these things in your name.
We're going to do something today a little bit different as we conclude our time together. We're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And during this next song, there are two tables in the back and two tables uh, up front. And in the back, there's a piece of uh, some bread and some juice. And we want to invite those of you who are followers of Jesus to come and break that bread and dip it into the juice. And we do this because there was an instance in Jesus' life right before he was crucified where he would take bread and he would say, this is the symbol of my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he would take a cup of wine and he would say, this is my blood which is spilled for you. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of my death and my blood that was spilled for you. And so this is a great moment as we've talked about this powerful truth for us to pause and thank Jesus to reflect on what he's done, maybe a time of confession to acknowledge some areas of our life that are out of alignment just to, in a fresh way, say, God, I'm yours. I'm all yours. Take my heart. Search me. It's all yours today. So as this song plays, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come to the tables. If you are exploring faith and you've yet to make that decision, we want to just invite you just to stay put and think about what we've talked about today, particularly the love of God and his desire for you to know him and have a relationship with him. Let's stand together as we sing and come to the tables as you're ready.
again That I am found I am yours I am loved I'm made pure I have life I can breathe I am healed I am free You are strong You are Jesus for your sacrifice that we celebrate today thank you that all of us of many different backgrounds and experiences and ethnicities can all come and find hope and life in you Jesus thank you for making a way when there was no other way available we receive it with joy in Jesus name Amen